Do you like to learn about random wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should? Then welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge. And if you dig the show, get more information at ladyfoxentertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to part two of Nothing Off Limits with Billy Vera. We're going to pick up where we left off. He just lost his record deal. We're going to find out what happens next in this blue-eyed soul artist's journey. Welcome to the show. But meanwhile, while I had been at the Troubadour, Chip Taylor's brother came in one night, who I knew from New York. You know, he was a, he was an actor named John Voight. Wow, really? Yeah, and and so I knew John from the old days, and so he comes in with his acting coach, David Proval, who you might know from Mean Streets and The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. So they come in, and, and, and John can be very intense. So he, he grabs me in the dressing room after the show. He says, he says, you know, he says, you should come to David's class. I said, John, I don't want to be an actor. I said, that's really not for me. I'm not good looking enough, you know. He says, no, no, no. He says, you don't understand. He says, I have never seen a singer do what you do on stage. He said, most singers manipulate an audience. They decide they're going to make you laugh. They decide they're going to make you cry. They decide they're going to make you horny. They decide all these things. He said, you don't do that, man. He said, you just, you just lay it out there. And you, you let them feel what they will organically feel. He said, nobody does that. If David and I could get you to do that without a song and without a guitar, or without a microphone, he said, you could be one of our great actors. And I said, come on, John. I, you, come on, don't bullshit me. He said, no, you must come. So he talked me into it just to shut him up. I went. <laughs> and the first night I go to this class, I see these two guys up there. This guy, Chris Mulkey, I'll never forget it. And this other guy named Rocky Estreviria, who became Stephen Bauer, who's now on Ray Donovan with John Voight. Oh, my God. So funny. Yeah, they were great on stage doing this kind of work that I had never thought of as, as acting. It was so real. But meanwhile... I was so intimidated, I, I didn't get up there for about three or four weeks. I just kept going back just to watch them. So finally they got me up there, and it took me about a good year before I started to get it. I had to unlearn some stuff, and, and then, then people started asking me to be in plays, and, and finally, I forget whether I got the TV show first. I did an episode of Alice. Oh, really? Oh, my God, I used to watch that show. <laughs> Knott's, Knott's Landing, I did a Knott's Landing, I played thug, you know, gangster. That's great. I remember and, all these shows. Yeah. And then I got uh, asked to be in uh, this movie, uh, Buckaroo Banzai, which uh, flopped in the theaters. But we had a great cast. We had Peter Weller, Ellen Barkin, Jeff Goldblum. Wow. Became like a cult hit. It became, yeah. It, it, well, it flopped in the theaters. But a, but a year later, when they put it out on video, it became number one for six months so and then after that it became this cult movie and uh, now it's like 30 years later people are still talking about Buckaroo Banza <laughs> so you know that for the next five years after the record company went out of business I'm eking out a living <laughs> as as an actor one of the few that actually made a living wage as an actor did you still play gigs with the beaters yeah yeah i played weekend gigs with the beaters and we, we worked almost every weekend so between that and the acting gigs and what little songwriting royalties i had at that time you know i was able to live in a nice little apartment over in 
you know, near uh, La Brea and, uh, and Beverly. And so, you know, by this time I'm getting worried. Right. You know, now I'm like, I'm 40. And I figured, my God, you know, what can I do? I'm really too old to be a rock star now. You know, how am I going to make a living? You know, I mean, I, I'm not going to become a big actor. And I'm scared. One day the phone rings. This guy says, my name is Michael Whitehorn. I produce a show called Family Ties. We were at the club the other night, and we heard you do this song that we think might be good for an episode we have coming up. And uh, he couldn't remember the title yet. So we figured out it was at this moment. And so, you know, I said, get in touch with Warner Brothers. and They, they have the publishing. And so they used it. And, and I had had a bunch of songs on TV shows before that. But, you know, it was a few bucks. Nice. Help with the rent. Mm -hmm. But this time I got mail. And uh, I said, wow, maybe there's something to this song. Maybe I'll see if I can get somebody, if I still get somebody on the phone at a record company, maybe they'll let me re-record it. And nobody was interested. Nobody at all. And finally, I'm having one of my periodic lunches with my friend Richard Foose, who owns a label called Rhino Records. They put out oldies. And we, we have these lunches where we argue about whose version of Mustang Sally is the best. You know? <laughs> Wilson Pickett, no, the Rascals, no, the original by Mac Rice, you know, that kind of argument, you know, real esoteric arguments. Yeah. So I said, you know, Richard, I said, this is what happened. I told him what happened with that, you know, family ties. And I said, I said, how many records do you need to sell to break even? He said, oh, well, we know we have low overhead here. He said, we could probably break even on two, three thousand. I said, well, what if I can help you get licensed my my alpha recordings, put out an album of the best of those, and, you know, these people will stop bugging me when you're going to put a record out. <laughs> said, I can sell them in the clubs if worse, worse comes to worse. He said, sure. And believe me, he only did it because he likes me. You know, he never thought he was going to Well, gonna yeah, because, like, you wouldn't seem like you'd be a match for Rhino. Mm -mm. No, exactly. You know, their oldies are a lot older than five years. Right. That's so, so cool. By the time they got the album came out, they missed the rerun. And then the next season, they used the song again when the girl breaks up with Michael J. Fox. Mm -hmm. well, I remember that so clearly. Yeah, right? It was huge. Yeah, this time the, the story of the song, Boy Loses Girl, was the same as the story of the episode, Boy Loses Girl. Mm -hmm. And it connected somehow with the public. And NBC told us they had more phone calls letters than in the history of the network no kidding yeah and who's the singer what's the name of the song where can we buy it and they started and they, and they had the answers this time <laughs> and there was a record out and so people started calling radio stations people started calling record stores it became that rare rare thing uh, an organic grassroots hit no there was because Rano didn't know how to promote that wasn't their business Right. You know, they they weren't in the business of promoting at current records. So this thing happened all by itself. Well, it started leaping up the charts, you know, leaping over Bon Jovi, leaping over Richard Marx, <laughs> leaping over Madonna. And it, it goes to number one. What were you feeling at that time? Were you like, oh, my, I knew there was something with this song. You, you can't imagine what happens when something happens when, when, you, when you get a hit that fast. I mean... All of a sudden, you know, my phone starts ringing at 6 o'clock in the morning, and it doesn't stop until 2 o'clock the next morning. <laughs> and people that uh, I couldn't get on the phone, you know. Oh, now they want a piece of you. Oh, yeah. You mm -hmm. know. Oh, girls that wouldn't go out with me, suddenly they're 
oh, billion. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, record companies, the word got out that I was a free agent. See, I wasn't signed to Rhino. Oh, so you were being chased by all the labels so they could make money. Yeah. They're like, ooh, this is big. Let's let's grab this. Yeah, grab him. Managers, you know, I mean, you know, Rod Stewart's manager, you know, all these people. You know, I finally picked uh, Gallon Morris, Sandy Gallon, Jim Moore. You know, they had Neil Diamond, Dolly Parton, all these great big acts. I go with them. Uh, I get a call, not from Joe Smith's secretary, but Joe Smith calls me up. Billy, uh, hey, baby, Joe Smith here. I, I just took over as president of Capitol Records. I want you to be my first signing. I ended up going with them. And, you know, we, we, we're doing every music show that, that there was. This is amazing to me. Nobody cared that you were already in your 40s. No, and bald. and and i'm on american bandstand you know 42 years old now and little 16 year old girls are screaming over me and and so we do carson we're doing i mean every dick clark was a big he, he loved me he put me on every show that he had anything to do with and he produced a lot of shows uh he even had me be a presenter on the american music awards wow yeah. He sounds, I've heard um, that he's such a, he used to be such an amazing, amazing guy. He was for me, I'll tell you that. He was, he, but he, he was very demanding. You know, he, he demanded professionalism. He's very loyal. You know, he, he, he came up with a, a sitcom pilot for Frankie Avalon, who, you know, was right in the beginning of American Bandstand. And it was about, <laughs> it was about a, a has been one time teen idol who is now an older guy and he's, you know, reduced to working cruise ships <laughs> and the kind of guy who who has a pile of eight by ten glossies by the door so he can hand those out and, and instead of tips to the pizza delivery guy <laughs> and it, you know and then then once a week his his old cronies from the bandstand days come over and have spaghetti and play cards and i i was one of those guys and so we did this pilot and it was it was so great because dick was in the audience and you could hear that great laugh of his. And it, it looked, it, and as sitcoms go, it was a good little show. But then CBS had a had a change of uh, regime, and of course, what always happens is that uh, that anything that's in the pipeline gets dropped, and the the new regime brings their friends in to do shows. So it didn't get made. But the point was that Dick was loyal to Frankie, you know, and and he liked me enough to to put me in there. You know, I went made the made an album for Capitol. Uh, Tom Dowd my, from my old Atlantic days producing. We had one single that, that went top ten in the adult charts, but they couldn't really bring the album home. But you were back on track though, in a big way. Kind of, you know. I mean, for a while it looked good, but I couldn't get another hit record. You know, to be honest, the record wasn't great. I realized later what I had done wrong, and what I mean by that is. Now that I was part of the Capitol family, my old friend from back home, Michael Cuscuna, probably the number one jazz producer in the country, worked for Blue Note, which is a subsidiary of Capitol Records. Mm-hmm. And his boss was Bruce Lundvold, who was probably the last, or now he's dead, but was probably the last of the great record men. You know, I mean, he signed Willie Nelson, he signed Nora Jones, he signed big, you know, important acts. Mm-hmm. So Lou had... Uh, Bruce had signed Lou Rawls to Blue Note. He said, he said to Michael, he said, why don't you and, and you produce Lou and bring Billy in? Because Billy's good with songs and he, he's 
You know, he knows that he's good with singers. Now, Lou had been making these awful Vegas disco type albums that had been selling nothing. And so his recording career was in the toilet. So Bruce had said, listen, what you should do is take Lou back to the kind of music that originally people loved him for. Mm-hmm. You know, jazz, blues, you know, do that. So we, and, and some of your songs. So I said, great. We got uh, George Benson to come and do a solo and... Wow. We got uh, got Diane Reeves to sing a couple of duets with him because she was on Blue Note at the time. And we got Ray Charles to come and do a duet with him. And it almost felt like a resurgence of your early days, the 60s. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, it was that kind of a record. We, it was an old Atlantic-style record mm-hmm. but because we had Richard T. and Cornell Dupree, you know, on the rhythm section. You know, David Fathead Newman from Ray Charles' old band on, in the sax section. Wow. And, and so the album went to number one on the jazz charts. <laughs> of course it did, because you did it from a, a place of authenticity. You weren't trying to follow a trend. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, we did a we did a record that we want to listen to. You know? Right. And so we did two more albums with him. They were they all went top five. And so we we really brought Lou's career back. You know, recording wise, mm-hmm. and it was it was pretty great. Now, meanwhile, while I'm doing this, since my career was go- really going nowhere, my uh, managers, you know, also managed Rick Dees, the disc jockey. Oh, yeah. And Rick wanted to be Johnny Carson. Manager said, well, my job is to try to make that happen, uh, regardless of whether I think it's a good idea or not. I wish I had a manager like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just kidding. So, so they went to ABC. ABC said, well, Rick's uh, Rick's TVQ isn't high enough to justify a, a show. Yeah like, yeah, like nobody really identified with him for TV. Yeah, a TVQ is a way that networks have of measuring how popular a, a, a personality is. So that, and they, it's either in how well they're known, and there's and then there's another one is how well they're liked. <laughs> So they still use this today. Oh yeah! Wow. Absolutely. Manager came up with a brilliant idea. He said, "Well, you know, nobody's ever had a, a house band that had a name before." He said, "Maybe the combination of your name and Rick's name will be enough TVQ." And it turned out it was. And he said, "Actually, he said your TVQ is higher than Rick's nationally." Oh God! Well, yeah, because you just came off of at this moment. Yeah, and Rick was local. TVQ, right? Mm-hmm. So they did the show, and it was not a good show, and the ratings showed that, and it lasted. It lasted a year, and that was the end of that. And it was one of the one of the things in my life that nothing came of it. <laughs> it <laughs> I've had a lot of those. <laughs> yeah, you know the the game. Yeah. Yeah. So, in, in now while I was doing all that. I was doing a radio show playing old R&B records for free, just for fun, one day a week. And that was on what radio station? KCRW in uh, in the Santa Monica College Station. Mm. Well-known, listener-supported station. Yeah. So one day, I did that for six years, and one day there was a message in my box said, he's got an interesting voice. You believe him when he talks. Would he be interested in doing voiceovers? Well, by now... I had married an actress and had a, a child, and she had a child before that. And I'm really scared because I'm not making the kind of money to support somebody like that. Mm-hmm. I was taking any acting job before. I was a little, you know, I was a little picky. 
I take any. I take a job with a few lines just to have Christmas money. This goes to show you, you don't really make a lot of money on on a on a first number one record because what the kind of gigs you're offered are opening act gigs for a big star, and the kind of pay that those things pay is it's okay for a four piece twenty two year old band that's willing to ride in a van together and and double up in hotel rooms. Right. Well, I had 10 guys, and they were grown-ups who each had to have his own room, <laughs> and there was no way I could afford to be an opening act. So there, there was very little touring, and that hurt us a lot. Mm-hmm. You couldn't take a smaller subsection of the band? It wouldn't be the beaters, you know? Yeah. The horns, you know? Yeah. It wouldn't, you know, that's, I made an artistic choice that turned out not to be a a dollar choice. <laughs> right. And it was a great musical choice, not a good financial choice. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So now I'm married. I got all this. I got to make money. So I'm doing anything for money. And I said, well, I'll, I'll give this voiceover thing a try. What the heck? My father did it. And the first one I did was for Nissan. And they wanted a sort of a deadpan voice. And I remembered this old comic that used to be on Ed Sullivan all the time named Jackie Vernon. And he told all his jokes in a monotone. Yes, that's right. When I, uh, uh, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. So I did that. All of a sudden, man, my phone's ringing off the hook. Everybody wants me to do voiceovers. But I and had- this was based off of someone hearing you on KCRW when yeah. you were just playing old R&B records that you liked for fun. Exactly. Wow. And then I said, gee, I better, when the phone started ringing, I said, I better get an agent. But I didn't know any agents. So for voiceovers. So my attorney mentioned this woman and I said, oh, my God, Cindy, I knew her when she was a a secretary there. Now she owns the company. So I called her up. This was a Kazarian Spencer. And I went. She said, sure, man, I'll represent you. And uh, and that led to quickly I'm I'm making money. And I, I just worked and worked and worked. I mean, it didn't matter who my agent was at that point. So everything that you went in to read for, or people were just hiring you without an audition? No, you had an audition, but my percentage of what I booked was extremely high because it was just, it was my time. That's all. Yeah. I'm any better than anybody else. It just was my time. They say that that's how it kind of flows in trends, just like the music did. And when it was the 70s, you didn't feel like feel like you fit in. But now yeah. with this, it was like you were perfect. And that's that's what everybody in show business should remember. You know, when it's your time, it's your time. And when it's not, it, it won't be. <laughs> right. You know, so save, really so don't you. so don't blow your money and don't yeah oh boy yeah and I I've been poor for a long time so you know I, I was frugal but now so now you're booking all these big campaigns yeah and then I started doing uh, promos for networks one of the first ones I got was there was a show called I can't remember the name of it it took place in Alaska anyway that was my one show on CBS and I'd go up there and I'd do their their spots every every week. And the show ended after about two years, and I'm walking out there with my tail between my legs, and some guy sees me in the hallway, and he says, Billy, he said, uh, we're thinking of letting our comedy guy go. This guy was a really good announcer. He had been he had been CBS's comedy guy for 13 years. Wow. Did all their comedies. He said, yeah, they want to change something, and I want to present you to them. So they, they hired me for that, and I... I did all, for the next five years. I did all of CBS's comedy. I love how you were just walking down the hall, and then you just got a new job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
you know, and, and then these other networks started using me, not not full time like CBS, but ABC would use me, uh, Fox would use me. So you were doing yeah. promos for all the major networks, plus you had commercial campaigns running. Yeah. So what were the campaigns that you that you started off with? One of them was AMPM, I assume. That was later. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, there's so many I can't even remember, you know, but I had some that lasted a long time. Some restaurant for nine years. I can't remember the name of the restaurant. <laughs> See, this is amazing that you've you've done so many uh, projects and, and booked so many campaigns that you can't even remember. <laughs> I know you for AMPM. I know your voice from Burger King. Yeah, I did that for about three and a half years. Yeah, Breakfast with the King, right? Yeah. Yeah, say it. Breakfast with the King. <laughs> I love that. And the other one was the big one, uh, Honda, right? I did I did several cars, and Honda was one of them, yeah. Yeah. What other cars did you do? Nissan. I did Mercury for, for quite a while. Mm-hmm. So yeah. are you still doing voiceover today? When it's not your time, it's not your time. All I have really left now, and, and I'm grateful as hell for it, but is, uh, is AM, PM. And with thank God for that, because I make enough to qualify for my insurance. And uh, Well, it's amazing to me that this whole idea of music leading to acting, leading to voiceover acting, it's like it's all within the entertainment realm, but it's just your career path is so interesting and fascinating how you just kind of just went from boom, oh, now I'll do this, boom. And every single thing that you did, even though you felt like you struggled within those periods of time, it sounds like it was successful each time. Yeah, well, I I, I had a revelation at one point. I said, you know, the, the age of specialization is over. Yes, isn't that and the so- truth? The, the trick is to, to, to make a, a comfortable living, you, you, you try to do everything that you do well. I mean, don't waste time on things you don't think you do well. But Agreed. But, but everything you do well, do it. And one year, the music will do better. The next year, the voiceover will do better. So at least one of the you're juggling, and one of the balls is always up. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, now I completely agree with that approach, but there are people out there who believe in the purest approach, where it's like, oh, if you're an actor, then you need to just stay with being an actor, and you're not allowed to do anything else. You know what I mean? Or else you're not a real actor. And live off your girlfriend. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's really what that that. Or off of, of daddy. Yeah, your trust fund. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, another thing that I did that did not make much money, but it, it was the most uh, the most fun, is I got into uh, producing reissue CDs. You know, mm-hmm. I I got I, I got a connection. A friend of mine brought me up to this old record company, Specialty Records. That was the company that had Little Richard and Sam Cooke in his yeah. early years, and Lloyd Price and Percy Mayfield, all these great people. And uh, it was being run by the founder's idiot daughter, who really knew nothing about the company, and she was she was busy spending the company money at uh, buying clothes for herself. Oh boy! So anyway, I was able to talk her into doing a Little Richard box set, and and it, it was well received. I said, "There's these other artists on the label, you know, that I'd like to do CDs with." So I did six more, just CDs. And then the father had had enough of her, and he just, he wanted to sell the company. He sold it to Fantasy Records up in San Francisco. And so the guy that ran Fantasy, he calls me up. He said, listen, we got nobody up 
up here that knows specialty. He says, uh, would, you, would you come up and talk to me? So he flew me up there and I talked to him. He said, listen, I want you to work as a consultant for us. You could put out like five, five CDs per quarter. I said, well, you know, these, these artists aren't that big. He said, listen, he said, most record companies, they put out a few records that have to sell a lot. He said, our philosophy is we put out a lot of records that only have to sell a little each. <laughs> How beautiful is that? Yeah, that way you get a lot of great music that that wouldn't c come out totally, otherwise. Totally, totally. They own a lot of jazz labels. They own Prestige. They own Contemporary Jazz. They own just just a bunch of bunch of labels. They, and they also bought Stacks, ironically. Mm, interesting, and you knew that well. Yeah, but they had somebody working on Stacks already. But they just wanted me for specialty. I, you know, I called up Kuskuna. I said, I said, what should I charge them? Uh, you know, per month. Uh, so that was pretty good. So obviously you're putting your kids through college and all. <laughs> they weren't that old yet, but I was I was able to put them in school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was able to support myself and my my family, and you know, and uh, eventually the marriage ended. You know, I just kept doing all these different things. Right, you're juggling all these different entertainment balls. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty amazing. So before we get to what's coming up for you, I'm curious what is what is the best moment in your mind? Was it getting a, a star on the walk of fame or winning a Grammy for your music historian, your reissue work? Boy, I don't know. They were both pretty cool. <laughs> uh, the, the, the star was totally unexpected. That came from uh, Angie Dickinson nominated me for that. She, we met on uh, Carson. I did Johnny Carson nine times and we met on that show and she became a fan. She came to all our gigs. <laughs> She was really great. She she memorized the names of everybody in the band and the crew. Wow. And people would come backstage and she'd be like the hostess. You know? She was like your, your band groupie. <laughs> she was yeah, something like that, you know. But she said she said, Man, I, I think you're great. She says, You know, you know, I was married to Bert Backrack. She says, I, I used to date Sinatra, I dated JFK, and I think you're as great as any of them. She says, and I think you should, I want to do what I can do to help you achieve that. Wow. And uh, and so she nominated me, and I said, man, I said, they're going to laugh at me. They're going to mock me for, I'm not a big enough name to have a star. You know, I was really concerned about that, you know, because people, because there's a lot of big, much, much bigger names than me that don't have stars. And she said, listen, this is how it works. The Walk of Fame is about Hollywood. Not about, not even about L.A. It's about Hollywood itself. She said, "Look what you've done here. What your contribution? You played clubs in Hollywood. You made records in Hollywood. You made movies in Hollywood. You did TV shows in Hollywood." She said, "Everything you've done has, has added to Hollywood." <laughs> and she says, "So you deserve it." And uh, this lady's awesome. She was. She was very awesome lady. Yeah. You and didn't so, date her. No, no. People thought we did. Uh, people probably to this day think we did. But no, no, I didn't. People say, why not? You're crazy. <laughs> you well, know? right. Yeah, she's beautiful. Yeah. But, uh, but she just took a liking to you. And, and there's something there that she really supported you that much that she was just your your cheerleader. Yeah, absolutely, man. It was. Yeah, she was great. So that was super cool that you got this star. But 
it's equally as cool that you got the Grammy. So you can't decide what your best, your most exciting moment was in your career so far. Well, the Grammy's more recent, you know. So and and you know, a lot of my friends had Grammys, and I felt like an orphan. You know. <laughs> well, you've uh, had the some of the biggest stars record your music, and then you had these number one hits. So yeah, of course. You know, you got it. You got to just put your head down and keep going mm-hmm. forward. Do what you do and do it as best you can and be honorable as you can. And so I, I was nominated three times before I won. Best uh, historical reissue, uh, best liner notes. Finally, you know, the Ray Charles gig came along. I had done seven or eight Ray Charles CDs. I was nominated for a Ray Charles box set. <laughs> you know, I thought we thought we were going to win on that one. Because how do you lose for Ray Charles? I mean, right. So, but we did. You know, it wasn't his year, I guess. But this this last time, they put out the bet the the complete Ray Charles ABC singles, and they asked me to write the liner notes for that. And so I did. And uh, next thing you know, I'm nominated again. So and so I went. I only go to the Grammys if I'm nominated. <laughs> it's a big zoo, isn't it? Yeah, I don't. I mean, it's just too crowded. I don't think. I, I don't. I don't know any of the artists. You know, I don't know any of the music. You know, I don't pay attention to a lot of that stuff. <laughs> so my uh, representatives, this girl Tamala, said you should go and bring the hottest girl you know. So you weren't available. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I I asked this little friend of mine, this up and coming actress named Augie Duke, because she's a cool chick. It's very hip and. She knows how to act, comes from a show business family. So here we go. She was supposed to meet me here. She, she gets here on time. The girl that was supposed to do her hair is late. A, a, a fan of mine who's a limo driver drove us. So we leave late and, and we're zooming down there. And by the time we got there, by the time we got there, we were at our, we just got to our seats. We were in the process of sitting down when my name was called. Oh my God. I run down the aisle. And she's following me with her little cell phone, t- taking pictures. You won, baby. You won. You effing won. You know? <laughs> and, and, and I get up to the microphone, and I'm out of breath. And I'm going, holy shit. And everybody's laughing. <laughs> and it was just it was pretty cool. It was very cool. That is so great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. I mean, I, I, if I had missed that, it would have been awful. <laughs> yeah, for all the stuff you went through. Nomination yeah. after nomination, and then to miss it when you actually win it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's coming up next? I know that you're doing the big band. Well, for years, I, I've always wanted to do a big band album. I, I procrastinated because I, I didn't want to. It's expensive. And uh, nobody, no record company was going to you know, do that with me. And Right. There you are with your, I mean, more than a 10 piece this time. Oh, 18. Mm-hmm. So I got a little luck a couple of years ago, and Michael Buble recorded at this moment, and I got to fix Wikipedia because it's now it's over 10 million records sold. Wow. And so I took one of the checks, <laughs> and I, I said, I'm going to use this check, and I'm going to do a first-class album. going to cut it at Capitol Studio A, where Sinatra and Dean Martin and Nat Cole mm. and Percy Wilson and Peggy Lee made all their classics. Going to hire the best the best musicians in town, jazz musicians, get a great arranger and, and make this record. So we did, and uh, Lundvall wanted it for Blue Note. But by this time, 
he was sort of on his way out. Like, how could you replace Bruce Lundvall, for God's sakes? But they did, and so he couldn't get it done. And it, it just broke his heart because he, he was a friend and a fan. And Concord was not interested in it. And we, we, so we, I pressed up a bunch of copies and said, to hell with it, we'll, we'll just work some clubs and we'll sell them in the clubs and see what happens. The indie route. Yeah, couldn't even get radio on it because you got to have a real label. So like, it took about two, maybe close to three years. And, and I finally went to Varese Sarah Band and they had put out an album of some of my old, you know, that I'd done in movies and done fairly well. In fact, as a result of that show that I met you on. Hit me, baby, one more time. Right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's forgettable. As a result of that, uh, the next day, the thing went up on Amazon like crazy. And just just from that one appearance, on, that's the power of television. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, I went back, and they always paid me on that album. So and. So I, I went to them and I said, you want to put out my big band album? So they, they did. And now it's on K-Jazz. All the jocks are playing it. And, and there are other jazz stations around the country, New York, Miami, that are on it. That's awesome. So, yeah, I got that happening. I go back to New York. I play. I do a big band gig there. And I'm having a ball with that. And I've seen your big band and it is amazing. It's The energy is incredible with all those horns. And I know that you're having a blast. I can just tell. I am, and, and, and the, the musicians, they're loving it. I got the best guys in town, and they're, they're just, they just love the band, you know? So It's good music. It's great. Yeah, what's not to love? Mm-hmm. And so you have this CD, and, then, and now you also, you also have a book, right? Yeah. When I first moved to L.A., I told you about my old bass player. He used to drive me around town at night. You know how you see, when you move to a new place, you see it with different eyes than the natives see it. Sure. So what I started to notice was all these great old neon signs. So I said, Chucky, I said, drive me around. I said, well, I want to shoot pictures of neon signs at night. So I took about 70 pictures, and, and I just kind of dropped it and put them away. And then a few months ago, a friend of mine was over here, and she said, uh, she said, my God, these are great pictures. She says, why don't you do a book? Why don't we do a, a gallery show? And yeah. So, you know, I got it published, and it's out, you know. I call it Vintage Neon Los Angeles 1979. Because mm-hmm. vintage is in, neon is in, <laughs> Los Angeles is always in. The timing. Sure. There we are with the timing again. So, yeah, hopefully the, the thing will do something. And also, I, I have to say this. You keep having these female guardian angels coming around. Well, males too, but like these little angels who just kind of like drop in and they're like, you should do this. You know, from the call girl to this woman. <laughs> to Angie, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've, and my agents, my voiceover agents are all women. So I've, I've done well with women, help, you know, looking out for me, as you say, angels, guardian angels. Yeah, and you also have another book coming up, right? An autobiography. Yeah, people have been bugging me for years. Why don't you write your autobiography? And I, I couldn't figure an angle. I said, I don't want to write, you know, and then I slept with... You know, I didn't want to write one of those, you know. Uh, Although whenever you and I hang out, I hear about those. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Gentleman never tells, you know. Ah. So, and, and I remember I remember Angie told me they, they offered her $2 million for hers. Wow. She, 
but they wanted it. They wanted it, and then I slept with this one or that one, and she she refused to do that. She she turned it down. Yeah. So I said, yeah, I don't. What is be. that? Why do people care? They shouldn't. You well, know, if you, I, live, yeah. if you live in Hollywood, everybody's doing everybody else anyway. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it probably won't be much of a surprise. Yeah, I mean, you 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 live here for six months. You chances are you're going to be with have been with somebody famous. Mm-hmm. You know, so anyway, I'm staying zip lipped on that one. <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> and then these guys wanted to do a, a documentary on me. It's awesome. So is this currently in production? Yeah, yeah, we got some great people. We got. You know, Dionne Warwick came in and talked about Judy Clay, and uh, Nona Hendricks from LaBelle came in. And, wow. Uh, Dolly Parton was nice enough to film herself doing some stuff, and Joey D from Joey D and the Starlighters, and mm-hmm. Mike Stoller of Lieber and Stoller. Oh, my God, we got just so many great people. This is amazing. When's it coming out, and where's it going? You know, we got most of all, all the talking heads shot. We got the licensed... Uh, some of the songs, including At This Moment and Storybook Children. And Does that bother you that you have to get the permission to use your own stuff? Well, it doesn't bother me getting permission. It bothers me to pay for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You're like, but, I wrote this, people. Yeah. And then, then their answer is, well, you know, most of the money goes back to you anyway. So what do you care? Yeah. That's right. so silly. <laughs> yeah. But that's the way it is. So you you just you're limited. You do what you got to do. Yeah. So so what is it? When is it slated for release? And where is it going to go? Do you know yet? Sometime next year. By the time it gets edited and everything, that's the hard part. Is yeah, the edit. totally putting it together as a story. I'm finally getting really excited about it. That it's going to be great. You know, it's it's way more than about me. It's it's it ta- it's it's a story of the music business. In, in, in those years mm-hmm. it sounds amazing it's like all these stories you went through so many different amazing eras of music and tv and film and it's like you've come across so many amazing other artists like yourself it's like that story should be told and shared for inspiration yeah yeah i think it's i think if if people you know my name is not really big enough it's that's been that's been the story of my life you know when, it, when I first uh, tried to get a book deal, well, you're not a big enough name. Nobody's going to, you know, you're not going to sell any books, you know, blah, blah, blah. We finally, finally got uh, a, a good publisher. Give me some money, actually. Give me upfront money so they must think they can sell a few. That's great. So I have one more question for you, Billy. You've shared so much over the years from when you started until, and you still do it now. What do you most want to be remembered by? Oh, boy. Well, I, I, I hope that more of my songs would be remembered. Uh, I, I would like to be remembered as a, you know, a singer of some note. And I, I think maybe, you know, when I went back uh, some years later after the Apollo, my Apollo time, went up there with Lou Rawls about 20 years later, you know, when we were recording him. Mm-hmm. We walk in the stage door in the back, the little alcove there was just shoulder to shoulder people. And Lou walks in, of course, a big star. And there's Ralph Cooper, you know, the dark gable, they called him. He was, he was an older fellow. He, he had been on the, the bill at the Apollo 
when they first opened the door to black people in 1934. So he was always around there. In Harlem, he was a big deal. So he's talking to Lou, and he's looking over Lou's shoulder at me. And I didn't look the same as I looked in 1968. And he's looking at me, and then finally he realizes who I am. And he said, Billy Vera. He said, come here, boy. And he he says, welcome home. He throws his arms around me. He says, welcome home, son. He said, and he said, and he looked around him and he said, I want all of you people in this room to know what this man did for our people and what he did at a time when there was riots going on across the river. Because we first time we played there it was a month after Martin Luther King was killed. Oh, goodness. And there was riots going on across the river in Newark, New Jersey. He said, he said, son, he said, your your picture is still in the lobby of this theater and it will always be there. And I'll tell you, I, I almost I almost lost it, man. Uh, That's deep and touching and amazing. And that meant more to me than just about anything I ever did. Mm-hmm. Touching people with your music, with your gifts. You will be remembered, not only at the Apollo, but I think everywhere, Billy. <laughs> well, I hope you're right. And we could just go down and, and look at your star, too, on <laughs> the Walk of Fame. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm excited for you. You still have so much more to do and uh, a lot of projects coming out. And I encourage all of you out there listening to go to Billy's website so you can stay on top of what's going on, his latest gigs when he's out with the big band, and get a copy of the book, too. Go on Amazon.com and search on the name of the book, which is Vintage Neon, Los Angeles, 1979. Go to com and get a copy of his CD, too. And if you're in L.A., go say hi next time he's playing out, because you play out pretty often, Billy. Yeah, we're, we're, we seem to be getting more. You know, uh, Benny Golson, the great jazz saxophone player, he, he was the, on the first jazz album my dad brought me home from NBC. And we became friends, you know, because I used him on Lou Rawls records. And he said something to me that really significant. He said, you know, he said, when I turned 45, I couldn't get arrested. He said, but when I turned 65, I became a legend. <laughs> And I never, I never forgot that, you know. Yeah. It's, it's like they start to when you, you know, during those in between years. You're right, you can't get arrested. But then, if you still hang in long enough, then they, I feel like they're now they're finally taking me seriously. Well, yeah, by now it's like you've done enough. It's undeniable. Well, so. And I've also seen your record collection, which is also undeniable. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, well, we all got our little our little addictions, you know. Mine's <laughs> yeah. vinyl. Yours is vinyl. I love it, Billy. I am very honored to call you a friend, and I'm also extremely honored that you agreed to be on Nothing Off Limits. Thank you for sharing your stories with all of us and inspiring anyone out there who wants to make it happen for themselves. Well, thank you for having me, Michelle. You know, you're my you're my dear friend. I love you very much. I love you. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.